0: According to Jewish tradition, Abraham endured 10 extraordinary tests in his life. The first was when God called him to leave his ancestral home for an unknown land. The last was the call to sacrifice Isaac on an unknown mountain. It's a magnificent interpretation of the Bible because both the first test and the last test begin with the same words – lech lecha. An unusual phrase meaning something like, get up and go, because a test awaits you. However, one 13th century commentator, Rabbeinu Yonah, insisted that the last of Abraham's tests was not the binding of Isaac, but the event described in this week's Torah portion, Chayei Sarah. The parsha opens with the death of Sarah. Abraham, in mourning, has no burial plot for his wife. Rabbis encounter these situations frequently. None of us likes to think of our own mortality, let alone actively plan for it. Often we meet families who have not thought of, let alone purchased, a cemetery plot. Since Abraham is a stranger in the land and presumably has not acquired property. He negotiates the purchase of a burial cave from the local landowner, Ephron the Hittite. He buried Sarah in what became known as the Cave of Machpelah near Hebron, a site still venerated by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Rabenu Yonah, thought that the previous generation of commentators overlooked this test and how harsh it really was because Abraham was in mourning. He had to bury his beloved with whom he lived for decades quickly. He ended up paying a fortune for the burial plot because when you have made no provisions in advance, you have fewer choices when you are in dire need. Rabbeinu Yonah explained that, nonetheless, Abraham didn't complain. Despite a life full of trials, Abraham embraced this trial, like all the others, with magnanimity, courage and fortitude. We recognize this reality, too. challenges. Never, and just when we feel we have endured everything, the final test of our lives, something happens that flattens us. Rabbeinu Yona's observation is subtle and profound. Death is among life's most severe challenges. We are deeply pained to have to accompany a loved one to their final resting place, even when they have lived a long life like Sarah. And we often overlook the difficulty of locating and preparing a burial plot. The difficulty of preparing a burial plot was front-page news this week. I don't know if you saw it – the Sutherland Springs, Texas cemetery where the Sunday massacre took place is struggling to prepare the graves for all the victims in so short a time. The tiny town's cemetery has never needed to bury so many all at once. Twenty-six people were massacred in church during Sunday prayers. The youngest of them was a one-year-old child, the oldest a 77-year-old adult. Eight members of the same family – the Holcomb family spanning three generations – were cut down. These tragedies are indescribable. Multitudes have offered their condolences – we weep, we mourn, we lament – but that is all we seem capable of doing nowadays. Even our highest officials have settled into a rote and routine formula. We offer our thoughts and prayers to the victim. There is, of course, nothing wrong and everything right in offering thoughts and prayers. But it is very wrong – and vastly not right – to only offer thoughts and prayers. It diminishes the preciousness of life. The brilliance of Rabbi Yonah's observation is to remind us that the test of burial is so harsh because life is so precious. As we have come into life with dignity, so we must exit life with dignity. If we are casual about death, we are casual about life. If thoughts and prayers are all you have to offer. Those thoughts and prayers are too shallow. You have not passed the test. You have taken the easy way out. What else are you offering? All of us should be asking this question, especially political, religious and community leaders – is there something else you want to offer? So that you will not have to offer so many thoughts and prayers in the future? Do you want to suggest deeds, resolutions, actions, resolve, legislation? Or are your thoughts and prayers enough for you – a kind of linguistic and liturgical life preserver you cling to in the rising seas of immorality? We want more than your thoughts and prayers. Why are these massacres occurring in the United States at a rate dwarfing every other modern country? Are Americans inherently more prone to violence? Is there something about the air that we breathe or our genetic makeup that inclines us to mass murder more than others? After you have offered your thoughts and prayers, we also want your intellect, your energy, your leadership and, most importantly, We want your moral outrage! Have we become so inured, so immune to murder, that we no longer recoil from the abhorrence of taking life? It's just another event in America? I am shocked by how unshocked we are. I am distressed by how undistressed we are. I am disappointed in myself. With every new massacre, it has become easier for me to move on. It is just another massacre day in America. We may dwell on it for a few minutes, an hour, a day – but what can we do? There is nothing to do. It is just part of the landscape of American society – as immovable as its majestic mountains and purple peaks. What can we do? Murder is the price. Of being an American. Time to move on. But before I do, I want to offer you my thoughts and prayers. There is a moral fatigue in this country – a dulling of the moral senses – that I recognize in myself and it disgusts me. We have lost the ability for moral outrage. The capacity to be shocked by mayhem and murder. We shield ourselves by sanitizing the sheer brutality allowing us to move on unmoved by the horrendousness of the horror and unshackled by the shackles of responsibility. It may all be recorded on film, but heaven forbid that People actually see with their own eyes what murder looks like. We prefer the sanitized Hawaii Five-O version. We are into trigger warnings nowadays that protect us from the real villains – Shakespeare and Mark Twain. We are into safe spaces today. We cannot be offended, disrupted, or disturbed even by the words of Huck Finn, let alone by images of barbaric brutality. Don't be satisfied only with thoughts and prayers. It disrespects the very religion in whose name you offer your thoughts and prayers. Judaism is insistent – thoughts are good, prayers are better, deeds are the best. Thoughts and prayers must lead to action in Judaism. Good intentions are desirable, but good outcomes are required. Piety is in performance. If religion is for anything, it is for life. The key insight of religion is the insistence upon the distinctiveness of the human creature. The central purpose of the book of Genesis is to establish the principle that humans are different from every other living being on earth. All were created by God. We alone were created in the image of God. Every religious principle flows from this axion. If both you and I have been created in God's image, we have equal sanctity, equal worth and equal dignity. Reverence for life is religion's primary preoccupation. It cannot be emphasized enough. The fundamental religious principle is the sanctity of human life. Every life is precious. Every life is sacred. The Talmud states that to save a person's life is akin to saving the world entire and to destroy a life is akin to destroying the world. Whoever sheds the blood of another destroys the image of God, proclaims the sage Akiva. Killing another human being constitutes The final solution. You have killed not only the present, you have obliterated the future. The victim's essence is extinguished forever. Jewish tradition looked at Cain's murder of his brother Abel in an effort to understand the rippling effects of murder. God admonished Cain, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Jewish sages notice that in the original Hebrew, the word for blood is written in plural. <speaking> in <Hebrew> Literally, the voice of the bloods of your brother cry out to me from the ground. In explaining why the word for blood is written in plural, bloods. The rabbis wrote that when Cain murdered Abel, he killed not only one man, he also killed all of the future generations that should have descended from this one man. All of the bloods of his descendants. In effect, God said to Cain, You have murdered all of your brother's children – thousands of future lives that will never be born – because of your deed. These are the voices crying out to God. None of those children – fathers and mothers – massacred in church, one of whom was pregnant Will have children. Their line is extinguished forever. Their bloods cry out from the earth What have you done? What will you do? If we fully appreciated the irreplaceable preciousness of life and the wicked abomination of taking life. We would be offering more than thoughts and prayers.